Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Pfizer recently announced its pediatric vaccine trial results. So the questions you all have been asking, what does this mean for kids under 12? Well, from Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Dr. Andy Shane gives all the details. Also, 30 years after testifying before a Senate Judiciary Committee, Lawyer, professor, and now author Anita Hill is addressing the issue of sexual harassment and abuse. And she's telling a little bit of her story, but also the story of others. I looked at our colleges and universities where the problems are are much more evident and because of student activism in large part. But I look at our workplaces and in some uh, sectors in our country where the problem is rampant and well known, but also those hidden places Mm -hmm. of people who are low-income workers and restaurant workers who may not get the visibility that someone in Silicon Valley might get. Those conversations coming up in just a moment, but we'll begin with the weather. Don't expect the rain to go away too soon. Meteorologist Ryan Willis is with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. We are looking at um, pretty widespread amounts of two to four inches of additional rainfall expected with locally higher amounts through tomorrow. So what does that mean? Well, the ongoing rain has led the Weather Service to issue a flash flood watch for much of north and central Georgia. As of airtime, that alert is set to expire Thursday morning, but Willis advised it could be extended. That means that everybody should be prepared for um, rainfall rates that could create some flooding on roadways as well as rises on local creeks and streams um, that could be hazardous to people in that area. And that means, as always, please, as drivers, do not try to go through flooded roadways. Now, meteorologist Ryan Willis Willis did not want you all to be mad at him, so he does have some good news if you're missing the sun. We'll start to see some changes on Friday, maybe a few peaks of sunshine then. um, But certainly by the time we get to Saturday, things should be looking a lot drier. Ah, thank goodness. In other news, several metro Atlanta hospital systems are now days past their own October 1st deadline for employees to get fully vaccinated against COVID-19. However, it's not yet clear how many employees have left or been fired for failing to comply. Now, those hospitals include Piedmont Healthcare, Wellstar Health System, and Emory Healthcare. This vaccine deadline comes amid a shortage of healthcare workers, especially nurses. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reporter Ariel Hart says that that shortage could be what's keeping hospitals quiet. The hospitals are kind of caught between wanting to do the right thing by making their locations safe, but also not losing staff who might decide that this rips it and they're going to leave the job. 
Now you can hear more of the conversation with Ariel Hart and WABE's All Things Considered host Jim Burris. The conversation's online at wabe.org. In related news, the CDC in Atlanta, of course, says it's still updating its COVID-19 guidance for the upcoming holiday season. There was an outdated guidance from the agency, and that led to a lot of attention and people saying, what? So after an older Web page was updated last week, pay attention. Last Friday, the CDC performed what it calls a, quote, technical update to the Web page containing holiday guidance. A spokesperson for the agency says those recommendations, like for virtual or outdoor gatherings, were outdated and don't reflect the CDC's guidance for the upcoming holiday season. In other words, stay tuned. The agency says it will share its updated recommendations for those gatherings soon. So don't uninvite Uncle Bob yet. And finally, the head of a Georgia's teachers union is warning students not to act on a social media challenge that encourages assaulting their professors. TikTok officials have promised to remove content promoting the rising slap a teacher challenge. But Georgia Federation of Teachers Union President Verdea Turner took to Facebook last night to echo educators' concerns. We applaud school districts and encourage school districts to use the fullest strength of the law when adults are assaulted verbally and or physically. But let us take this as another lesson as to how far we have waned in society as it relates to absolute truths and what's right, what's wrong, and what's to be accepted and what's not acceptable. TikTok officials tweeted they expect the platform's community to create responsible both online and real life and to please be kind to your schools and teachers. Come on, y'all. Get that together. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In May of this year, the CDC recommended the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine could be given to children as young as 12 years old. Then last month, Pfizer released results of a pediatric clinical trial for younger, even younger kids. And Pfizer announced that the vaccine was safe and effective in children ages 5 to 11. Now, while there is a regulatory process for approval, there are still a lot of other questions. So we only know there's one woman to answer this, right? No, there's a lot. But joining me now is Dr. Andy Shane. She's chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and medical director of infectious disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Shane. Thank you, Rose. It's my pleasure to be here. And we should note that we really always welcome all of you experts, whether it's from Emory or Morehouse School of Medicine or Georgia State or wherever. I don't want to get an email. <laughs> Let's begin by clearing up some confusion because I've actually got some emails because there were pediatric vaccine trials from both Pfizer and Moderna. And I think back in July, the FDA asked both drug makers to expand the clinical trials for children ages 5 to 11 because they wanted to make sure if there was any possible rare side effects. I take it that's common when we we have a research trial like this with kids that, that young. Yes, uh, Rose, that is, and uh, you know, we obviously um, are, uh, need to make sure that there are no adverse effects. And so when something is uh, seen, what we call the signal, it's really important to make sure that there are, the number of children are examined and evaluated uh, in a clinical trial situation. Can you take our listeners through some other common precautions or concerns uh, when these clinical trials involve very young children? 
So uh, yes, obviously we want to be extra cautious with a child of any age and especially younger children. Um, and obviously with any uh, product or vaccine that's being evaluated, it's always balancing risks and benefits. And so the risk of the disease and the benefit of the vaccine and the benefit of not having the disease. And so uh, it is not uncommon to begin trials in older children and young adolescents and then stepwise go back to younger and younger children uh, until currently uh, six months of age. And that's the way many vaccines um, that we currently have available uh, were evaluated um, in that stepwise backwards approach. I actually have a question from a listener that wanted to know that obviously that the doses are not the same and they use strength in quotation marks. And I guess that's a pretty good way of asking that question because it it, it wouldn't work the, the same in an adult as it would work in maybe a five-year-old, correct? Right. So uh, what was done initially, and there are actually two parts to many trials uh, in children. The first part is when it's sort of what we call the dosing and safety trial. So large numbers of children, the vaccines are given starting with very small amounts and then progressively increasing and what we're looking for is really the balance between a dose that you're going to get a good immune response and also you're going to have minimal adverse effects. And so once that dose is decided on and in a large number of children shown to be the, the, the correct dose, then that is the dose that is chosen for that particular age group. And for Pfizer's pediatric COVID-19 trial, do you know what the size of the test population was? I know they, they had enlisted, I believe, including Children's Health Care of Atlanta. So this was throughout the nation, correct? Correct. Um, and the first part, the dosing study that I mentioned, um, was over 90 sites worldwide. With this particular information, uh, looking for um, evaluation of the 5 to 11-year-olds from Pfizer, there were over 2,300 uh, children that were enrolled in that particular study. And of that 2,300, I imagine that's also very diverse in itself as well. Absolutely. And actually, in many uh, study sites, uh, there was a concerted effort to really try to enroll uh, children that were ethnically, racially, and gender diverse. Um, so as well as also, I think another important factor is uh, not every child was a particular age, is a particular weight. And so um, we also wanted to make sure that we had children of a wide weight range as well, especially when we're looking at dosing. And for f folks that have concerns about the, the time frame, that perhaps maybe this wasn't enough time, and, and we've had this conversation before, and I know you have as well, because it's the same conversation as it relates to adults who have some hesitancy about taking the vaccine. But this is a typical uh, time period. It's, it's nothing that was rushed, correct? That is correct, Rose. And also, I think it's really important and just related to this vaccine in general, um, because the pandemic was going on, there was a tremendous amount of resources, both in, in both people and also financial resources that were invested in making sure that these vaccines uh, were evaluated appropriately. It was basically an all hands on deck uh, situation. And at each one specifically with these pediatric trials, uh, there, was a tr there was a tremendous and concerted effort to uh, get as many children enrolled and, and volunteer as possible within a short amount of time because of the, uh, the urgency and the need related to schools and other um, activities that were beginning to occur, as well as just 
surging cases as we saw during the summer. But I do wanna emphasize um, really importantly to listeners that all of the appropriate evaluations and um, opportunities were taken care of so that there was no compromise of safety at any point in any of these trials. The voice you hear is Dr. Andy Shane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Infectious Disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. So let's get to what in, in Pfizer's announcement last month. Um, in there, and, and I love press releases because sometimes I think folks need to understand when you, and I know it's medical, but for simple folks like me, we have to decipher this. But um, in their announcement, they said last month that those participants, 5 to 11 years of age, the vaccine was safe, well-tolerated, and showed robust neutralizing antibody responses. So let's decipher that. First, well-tolerated. Take that further for our listeners. Right. So what was done with the trial was that after a child received a vaccine, um, every day a parent reported if they had any um, side effects. Um, they took their temperature. Uh, they looked at the site where the vaccine was given um, and reported those. Um, and so that, that really refers to the safety, and that was looked at across all the children's age groups. And as for showed robust neutralizing antibody response? So that, that's in the laboratory, and that's looking at um, the way the um, vaccine promoted an immune response in the children. And so uh, blood was obtained as well as nasal swabs to actually also look for whether or not a child became infected. Um, and then the neutralizing antibody response was related to uh, blood that was obtained from the child after they received the vaccine. And so now what's the next step here? Uh, Dr. Shane, we, we know that the FDA, there is a, a regulatory approval process. What does that involve? So it's actually a, a two-step process. So the company Pfizer has submitted their, um, their information to the FDA that is then reviewed very vigorously by a group called the VERBAC or the Vaccine Related Biological Advisory Committee. They will then meet virtually on uh, October 26th is what has been announced um, and um, hear presentations from Pfizer um, and review the data in, in very uh, de great detail and have discussions um, and then make a recommendation whether about uh, getting uh, additional emergency use, they will probably expand the current emergency use authorization uh, that exists for down to 12 year olds uh, to include five to 11 year olds. And that recommendation actually has to go on to uh, the CDC um, advisory committee that then hears um, more information, uh, reviews that again, and then their recommendation goes to the CDC director, who then makes a recommendation. Much like with the booster, I think the CDC, there, and there was a little bit of surprise there because the CDC director and the advisory panel didn't agree on everything. But from in, in that world, can you explain to our listeners how something like that would happen? Um, I know you don't speak for the CDC, but the concerns then with the booster, and there might be some similar concerns with this vaccine for, for very young children here. What could be a reason if there is a difference of whether or not it should be approved? Right. I think that's, uh, you know, and this is my own personal opinion, but um, what happens in many of these committees is that it's actually a vote. And so there are uh, uh, people who are physicians, clinicians, vaccine tr trialists, pediatricians, obstetricians, 
um, epidemiologists, a large variety of people, um, and there's a vote. And so sometimes in a situation where it, there may be a very close vote, and that's a reason why, uh, for example, that a someone making the final decision, for example, the CDC director, might weigh that vote, and if it was very close, uh, then reconsider and decide to uh, make a recommendation that may actually differ from uh, the advisory committee. What questions, and this is your own personal viewpoint, what questions would you have or concerns, and obviously you've worked in this field, and for, you know, for parents out there that are listening, they rely on folks like you to be their voice. You know, if you were in that room and you did have questions, what do you think you would ask? So I think that it's very important. One of the um, very rare um, adverse effects that we have seen is uh, myocarditis, which is uh, an inflammation or um, swelling of uh, the lining surrounding the heart muscle. Now, once again, that is a very, very, very rare um, event. Um, and so really as a parent, and I am a parent as well, um, I think it's important to understand um, did that occur? Uh, could that occur? And I think also a very important question is um, because the uh, evaluation doesn't stop once the emergency use authorization is issued. There's lots of ongoing evaluation and understanding how that is planned to occur um, so that very, very rare um, events such as myocarditis could be detected. I have a question here from a, a listener who wants to know about there were some concerns early on about folks that might have received the transplant as adults, maybe a heart transplant or a kidney transplant. Do we know anything about how that might affect young children who also have received some type of organ transplant? Yes, that's a that's a great question. And um, we are we actually uh, take care of a number of children who have received organ transplants and many of them who are age eligible, uh, 12 and above have received uh, the Pfizer vaccine and those that are older have received uh, the Moderna vaccine as well. And uh, we feel very confident this is a very important protection, especially in uh, children and adolescents who um, have compromised immune systems that may not work as well and may be more likely to have a more severe infection if they should be exposed to natural COVID. And Dr. Shane, a question for me. When the trial started, I think there were the Delta variant had, you know, it had been around, but we still didn't know the severity of it. But with the vaccines and the Delta variant for kids with that, is there a need to go back and see with another trial with those kids who see how this would, would work with those kids that might be exposed to the Delta variant? I don't know if that is something that's possible, but I'm just curious. Yes, that's a great question. And, you know, since there were multiple sites around the country that were conducting these trials, different sites had different uh, amounts of the Delta variant circulating when the trials initially began. But uh, for better or for worse, there was a surge. And uh, so many of the children who were enrolled in these trials, and, and remember, it's important to remember that some of the children did not receive the vaccine. Um, and so um, they were the ones who potentially were also still um, eligible or still um, have the possibility of, of actually having natural infection who did not receive the vaccine. So, um, you know, we feel uh, confident that there was a lot of Delta that was circulating at the time that mm -hmm. many of these children were being vaccinated and observed. Um, so, uh, and then that's another reason for having multiple sites around the country. 
What questions have your patients, your pa- your parents of your patients been asking you about all of this? So many parents obviously are concerned about safety and I think that that is really very important uh, and uh, important to understand. And as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, everything is a risk and a benefit. And while um, COVID has uh, not had a tremendous um, effect uh, in the same way that it has in adults in terms of hospitalization and deaths, thankfully in children, we have still seen a number of children who have had very, very severe infections. And so I think that it's one of the challenges with this virus with SARS-CoV-2 is that we don't know who is more likely to have a severe infection. Uh, Before Delta, we had some good ideas about people who seem to be more at risk, but Delta has really changed that. And so we've seen um, a number of previously healthy children who have been quite ill. And so uh, my really um, suggestion to families and parents is to, even though you may not think that your child or your family may be at risk, um, these vaccines are safe. Uh, They're very effective in preventing uh, hospitalizations and severe deaths. um, And so really are the best, the foundation for preventing the transmission and severe infections. You mentioned data, which is so important because I was just reading, I think it just last as of September 30th, that there were about 5.9 million children have tested positive for COVID-19 since the onset of the pandemic. And while that 5.9 million, as you know, you put that against uh, obviously older adults, some people may think, well, that's that's not so bad. But what do you want folks to know about either the vaccine or the importance of getting kids tested or anything that you want to add as it relates to our, our younger our younger population here? Yes, thanks, um, Rose. You bring up a very important point. And I think that it's really um, important that uh, parents uh, consider vaccination. It really is the foundation for prevention of transmission. I also wanted to mention that, uh, you know, not only do we measure numbers of clinical illness, but as we've talked about before, this virus has had a tremendous impact on children, their social development, their behavior, um, just being able to be a child. And so uh, getting a vaccine uh, is really a way of enabling us to return to that normal way of life and letting children be children again. Um, So I think that's important. And one other point, if I could just add, we are coming up on influenza season. And so uh, a reminder to everybody about the influenza vaccine, we really encourage Uh, everybody six months of age and older to receive a flu vaccine, ideally before October 31st, Halloween. Um, And uh, although we did have a very mild, almost non-existent flu season last year, things are very different now that people are back in the community. And so flu too is unpredictable. Um, And so we have very effective vaccines in preventing um, hospitalizations and deaths uh, in children and adults. Uh, with the flu vaccine. Had a conversation yesterday about it, and we all discovered that there are no eggs in the flu vaccine, so people can't use that excuse anymore. Now, if you're afraid of needles, I can't help you with that, but there are no eggs in the vaccine. Dr. Andy Shane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Infectious Disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Shane, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Good information. And always, a note of disclosure, please consult with your own primary care physician, although Dr. Shane is very well qualified, but check in with your own doctor. Dr. Shane, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rose. My pleasure.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. you're listening to Closer Look. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The National Women's Soccer League canceled all of last weekend's games, citing, quote, recognizing that trauma, we have decided not to take the field this weekend to give everyone some space to reflect, close quote. That trauma referred to recent accusations from several players detailing sexual harassment and coercion by one of the league coaches, Paul Riley. These allegations of sexual misconduct took place for more than a decade, and while Riley coached multiple teams, according to players, he was fired last week by the North Carolina Courage of the Women's Soccer League. And there's a lot more. Now other players are coming forward. And former world professional soccer player Sarah McCormick recently wrote, quote, women's soccer is rife with sexual misconduct, close quote. So whether it's sports, entertainment, a corporate environment, Religious settings, education, newsrooms, sexual harassment, misconduct, sexual abuse, it occurs. Let's go back to 1991. Anita Hill, then a law professor at the University of Oklahoma, told a Senate Judiciary Committee Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her. This, by Hill's account, happened when Thomas was chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Anita Hill had worked for Thomas. What happened next and telling the world about it are the two most difficult things, experiences of my life. It is only after a great deal of agonizing consideration and sleepless number, great number of sleepless nights that I am able to talk of these unpleasant matters to anyone but my close friends. I declined the invitation to go out socially with him and explained to him that I thought it would jeopardize at what at, at the time I considered to be a very good working relationship. I had a normal social life with other men outside of the office. I believed then, as now, that having a social relationship with a person who was supervising my work would be ill-advised. I was very uncomfortable with the idea and told him so. While her testimony was unprecedented in the details she gave, Clarence Thomas was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. But so began another journey for Anita Hill, as she told me in our conversation we just had earlier today, which now, in her own words and others, is addressing the issue of sexual harassment and abuse in this nation. Currently a professor of social policy, law, and women's gender at Brandeis University, Anita Hill is now the author of Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into believing, would you define gender-based violence through your lens for our audience? Well, through my lens, it's really the whole array of behaviors that have been reported to me through this past 30 years, coming from survivors and victims of 
all races, uh, all genders, um, all backgrounds, talking about bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, uh, stalking, sexual extortion in workplaces, uh, sexual assault on campuses and, and on our streets or, and in our homes, and, and intimate partner violence. So this whole range of behavior I had to have a name for because all of it was significant. And what I heard, all of it was connected. Mm-hmm. Professor Hill, in the book, you take the reader through so many accounts, and you begin with a lot of folks reaching out to you after your testimony. Were you surprised with that outpouring of people who wanted to tell you their story, whether it was in a phone call or letters? I was surprised. I had been made during the hearings themselves to feel sort of isolated and that my experience was unusual or that, in fact, it didn't even happen. And so hearing from others who shared the experience or had other experiences really was an affirmation. But it was a surprise because I had sort of allowed myself to be convinced by the detractors that it didn't happen. And one of the things that um, I've, I've learned over the years is that that's typically what happens. The detractors will dismiss I'll tell you it's not so bad, it's insignificant, nothing you can do about it. And and that really shapes our thinking, even about our own experiences, even when we know better. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that in the chapter in Our, our State of Denial. Hey, listener, listening may say, wow, from then you started receiving so many accounts from other people, but you started writing Believing last year. What? I started writing at, you know, I've been thinking about it. It is accumulation of all of what I've experienced over the past few years and changes that I had to make in my life, in my career to actually study the whole of the problem. Last year though, was a real wake up call. You know, we talk about 2020 as this year of turmoil. I also think it's a year of clarity about what we need to do and a year of accountability where people are saying, look, we need change. We need to be help hold people accountable, not just for the bad behavior, but for the systems that they put in place that are not working to resolve it. In fact, you informed the reader after beginning to write Believing, it wasn't that long that the coronavirus pandemic is declared. There's the killing of George Floyd and the protests demanding racial justice. And, quote, soon the pandemic's relationship to gender violence began to show itself. Take that further for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And that is really a telling factor, too. During the pandemic, uh, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, surged, surged during the, because people were together more. And what that shows me is that the, pam- uh, the pandemic just opened up uh, to the fact, opened us up to the fact that there are people who are living in their homes in fear. Mm-hmm. And it takes something like the pandemic to put them in a position where they can't escape the violence and that it's going to surge and that our resources that we have are just not adequate to respond to that. And they and we need to do more to curtail the violence, to stop the violence, give people resources to be able to get out of those situations before they result in, in uh, peril and harm to the individuals within their own homes. 
you know, the the other thing, though, that I, I will say when I talk about the, that sense of urgency, it was the numbers. It was that the fact that the vulnerable people are more vulnerable, uh, even even more vulnerable when we have something like a pandemic. And so the people who are vulnerable to violence are going to be even more vulnerable mm-hmm. um, in the middle of that. Also, I have to say that John Lewis's death, Congressman Lewis's death, was also one of those moments where I, we, I felt like we lost a leader for people who have been oppressed and hurt and harmed and don't feel they're represented. And mm-hmm. we needed to be able to represent their voices in a clear and, and impassioned way. Mm. What was the process for outlining the chapters? I talked about the chapter, our state of denial, all the way to accountability, because there's a reason for the order of these chapters, obviously. But what did you want the reader to know from chapter to chapter? Well, initially in our state of denial, I really wanted us to take a look at the whole of it. How we as a culture deny and dismiss and excuse and then ultimately are complicit in, in violence. Um, and so I wanted to get that up, up front. But then, you know, it is it's such a big problem. I had to have another framework for how do we get people to understand that this is really about them. It's about everyday experiences that they are witnessing but not even noticing. Um, and so I chose to go where is where the problem is happening. Mm-hmm. So I look at our schools. Uh, our elementary and secondary schools, where there is a huge problem that, you know, very few people are talking about. I looked at our colleges and universities where the problems are are much more evident and because of student activism in large part. But I look at our workplaces and in some uh, sectors uh, in our, our country where the problem is rampant and well known, but also those hidden places mm-hmm. of people who are low income workers and restaurant workers uh, who who may not get the visibility that someone in Silicon Valley might get and, or Hollywood mm-hmm. might get. And then, you know, I, so I wanted people to ex- understand and see this where it's experienced. And then that one la- other layer was that I wanted people to understand that the misogyny that causes violence overlaps with other identity factors mm-hmm. like race, mm-hmm. like um, sexual identity and gender identity, and that we needed to be able to address all of those biases. You can we you can't stop um, gender violence aimed at women of color unless you deal with both the misogyny and the racism. Mm-hmm. You know, Professor Hill, I've been saying on a number of occasions lately that I need to write a book when woke people fall asleep. And then I get your book and there is this chapter, The Myth of the Woke Generation. And here you you go into great detail with numerous accounts of bullying and, and harassment in schools. And you write also, quote, yes, the data shows that younger generations have attitudes that reflect respect that crosses the lines of race, gender, sexuality and religion but the changes in attitudes are not enough, close quote. And you talk about how throughout the decades, generations have kind of passed that responsibility on to the next generation to get it right. 
They absolutely have. And, and, and we will continue to do that unless somebody takes a stand until we make this a priority and understand the depth of the problem. Um, you know, the real problem is that every, even when you have a quote unquote woke generation, not all of that generation is woke. Uh, there is a lot of cyberbullying and, and bullying that is happening, peer-to-peer -peer bullying and harassment and assault that is happening. So that shows that not everyone is in on the woke part of their generation, but they're also inheriting policies and processes that are filled with all of these old ideas and myths about this behavior. Mm -hmm. So we've got to change the policies and practices and it's our generation that has that responsibility because we are the ones in control at this moment as you are collecting and compiling accounts of gender-based violence you're also recalling your own experience of sexual harassment and the testimony you started writing in 2020 you have a lot of personal stories did you include everything you wanted you know um there was a limit that my publisher would publish. Uh, but as you can see, with what's happened with the soccer team, uh, the women's soccer, what's happened with the gymnast, this story is ongoing. I could have uh, practically written another book since last year. Well, the Facebook and Instagram the issue right now, and you wrote this book before this came out, it was like... Everything you have you written in the book is what's happening now with the report about how Instagram is so toxic for young girls. I mean, it, it and that is just an example of how it's institutionalized. Mm -hmm. It's not individual behavior to individual behavior. It's a whole institution like, like Instagram that is built around sending negative messages to girls that it's been documented as causing them harm. Hmm. When did you complete your first draft of believing? And were you, did oh, you go God. back? How many rewrites did you have? Because you look, you're, 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 you're an academic, you're academic, so I know how y'all get. <laughs> how, how we can be slow. Well, listen, um, I, it was an ongoing process. I, I wrote chapter by chapter or groups of chapter. And then you go back and you review those as you're trying to write the next. I wanted it to come together. I wanted it to be a narrative of a journey of how we can move through the past uh, 30 years, but also how we can move through life mm -hmm. uh, in, in experiencing this problem of uh, the bigger problem or some behavior on the spectrum. And 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 I wanted to humanize it. So that was, uh, you know, it was an ongoing process. I, I didn't, I'll say, uh, I wrote many chapters, but I didn't finish any one chapter until the last chapter was finished. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had folks ask you, well, Professor, why this book with this particular approach as opposed to writing about your experience with the testimony, everything that happened to you, why not that? Well, there is some of that in the book, but yeah. the book isn't about me. Right. It's, it's about us. It's about all of us. It's about our, our children and our family members and people who we see every day, maybe in a grocery store or we, we, we go to work with. This is what the book is about. 
And that's what I wanted people to understand, that um, even though we like to think that these problems are not our problem, I, I, can, I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone who has been sexually harassed, perhaps given the numbers of one in four women have been in experienced intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, given those numbers, I'm sure we know those people. They are in our homes and their stories perhaps have not been told. Uh, and I want them to see themselves, uh, the victims and survivors, as well as the people who want to be allies in this book. And to, for those stories to be to be told and to be heard. At the time of this conversation in just a few days, October 11th, will mark 30 years when you testified. You think back to that Anita Hill and the Anita Hill now. What has been the process for you in dealing with that? Has this I've book grown. been cathartic at all, too? Yes, I've grown. It's been cathartic because I I realize that I'm a part of a community, a bigger community. Um, uh, I've had to make some changes in my life, but in the end, I feel I'm exactly where I was I am supposed to be. As we wrap up, among the people you dedicate this book to, there's an Atlanta connection, Lillian Miles Lewis, an educator at back then Atlanta University, probably more of a quiet civil rights activist and wife of Congressman John Lewis. She was special for you. She was. She was a friend. She was someone who reached out to me in 1991 uh, in a very human way. It was. She wasn't someone who said to me, you know, I need you to do this for me. Um, she was someone who befriended me and who befriended my parents. Um, and it was so meaningful for me to have her. Uh, she became an advisor uh, in terms of my journey to get to where I am now. And that's why the, the book is dedicated to her. I read somewhere that said, uh, quote, which is to say that it's fitting that she, being you, is on the cover because this is a book only she could have written. Talking about you, you embrace that description, Professor Hill? It is. It's personal enough. It's my personal journey, but, you know, I tie it to the journey of many others. And I hope it opens others to write their own story and to write their own book. And finally, I'd like to ask, how's Chuck? He's, he's doing well. He's doing well. We're fortunate to have good medical care. The book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. The author, Anita Hill, professor of social policy, law, and women's gender at Brandeis University. Professor Hill, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the conversation, and thank you for the book. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program, the conversations that you heard, or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look 
wherever you like. And don't forget to join our WABE health reporter and host of Did You Wash Your Hands, the podcast, Sam Whitehead, for a special Did You Wash Your Hands edition today at 6 p.m. Just log on to WABE.org slash community for more information. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 